Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. It's good to see you again. The Lord has taken me other places for a while. Uh, I've been preaching at a nursing home in town, preached about a dozen times. The chaplain retired and also went to Louisiana and preached about a month ago at my cousin's church. So it's been a preaching season for me, but it's really good to be back with you. Uh, I handed out some CDs this morning. I did not make enough. I set the book of Galatians to music. And Galatians is one of the most tumultuous of Paul's letters. It's got everything from fury to perplexity to gentleness. He's in the pain again of childbirth with them and so on. And the music reflects it. I use it to memorize, but also you can just capture some of the intensity of this letter. I'll bring some more next week and, and uh, if you didn't get one. If you can't get, if you don't have a CD player or you can't get it to play, uh, the website is listed on the label. And everything plus hundreds of other songs are also on the website. They can be downloaded digitally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I preached this sermon you're going to hear this morning at the Cushada Indian Reservation down by Eldon, Louisiana. It was celebrating its 120th anniversary of this Indian church down there. And the first sermon preached was John 3.16. And so my cousin John, who is the pastor down there, asked me to preach it. So you're going to hear the same message this morning. The place I work, like many businesses, is having a problem with shortage of workers. Can anybody identify with that? <laughs> so one day, of course, we were sitting around the break room table recently complaining about it. When the woman across from me finally said, well, it is what it is. Perhaps that's a saying you use sometimes. It's a way of saying this is the reality of the situation. Instead of denying the situation or spinning it, people are just saying, okay, it is what it is. Let's call it what it is and deal with it from that point on. Now that's a useful place to start, isn't it? We can pretend of life, we can ignore life, but to say it is what it is is a good starting place. What comes next, however, is what matters the most. Some things we can't control. You wanted to be six foot tall, you're five foot two. It is what it is. And, and some of the things the government's doing that we can't change and so on, things happening in our family. 
So it is what it is, is just a way of saying I accept the reality of life. At other times, however, it is what it is, is a good starting place for change. We accept that there is a problem, but instead of just giving up and saying it is what it is, we say it is what it is, but it doesn't have to stay that way. In our passage today, the Bible tells us that God made the second choice. He looked at our world and he saw that it is what it is. A sinful, rotten, sin-soaked world. We're not basically good people with just a few blemishes. Apart from God, no matter how nice we all may appear, we're rebels. We're at odds with God. Romans 3, 10 to 12 tells it very bluntly in a non-politically correct way. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do we get the point? <laughs> Let those words, not even one, ring in your ears because they include Grandma Smith. They include that neighbor down the road who would give you the shirt off of his back. By God's standards, which are much higher than ours, we're all seriously messed up by sin. And even more important, our sin has consequences. Romans 6.23 adds ominously, for the wages of sin is death. We will pay for those sins. So when Jesus came to earth, he came under no illusions. He saw a planet full of rebels and he said, it is what it is. It stinks down here. But praise God, he also said, but it doesn't have to stay that way. He came with every intention of changing what was broken in us and in our world. Let's walk through John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. And it rings with the good news, it is what it is, but it doesn't have to stay that way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says, for God. Now, I'm currently working in a hospital. I have a job in environmental services. Our role is to keep things clean, to keep the floor clean, the beds clean, and everything so that the, the serious work can be done. My particular job involves cleaning out Garbage like biohazard bags and dirty linen and garbage and so on. Now what I do is necessary, but I'll tell you something, they're not letting me within a mile of a scalpel. I don't even know where the scalpels are. And if you have a problem, and you know that I'm the one with the scalpel, you'll keep the problem. You'll stay away. It's way above my pay grade. That's even more true in the spiritual world. As we read a moment ago, we're all seriously sick spiritually. In fact, we're in critical condition. Don't just take Scripture's word for it. Look all around you. Look at what's going on in the world as, as a whole. Look at what's going on in our country, what's going on in our county, what's going on even in our own homes and even in our own lives. Sin is everywhere. Furthermore, 
like me wielding a scalpel, none of us has the skills to cut out the spiritual disease that is in us. And down through history, no one has ever had them. Folks, I have to tell you something. There never were any good old days. That's why these two words bring such hope. For God. One being in the universe was qualified to wield the scalpel. Only one. 2,000 years ago, and really before in his planning, the great physician picked up the scalpel. He diagnosed our fatal spiritual illness, and he said, I'll take this case. Let's schedule it. Aren't you glad? God could have simply sat back passively and watched us destroy ourselves in this life and in hell beyond. He didn't owe it to us to intervene, but he didn't just stand by. He picked up his scalpel and he stepped in. Why? Why? Our next four words tell the story. For God so loved the world. So loved the world. These are totally astounding, unexpected words. God doesn't just dislike sin. He hates it, absolutely despises it. Figuratively speaking, it makes him gag. And what's worth, worse, we're all coated with the stinking slime of sin. In fact, we're not just coated with it, we're saturated with it, we're marinated in it. Furthermore, the sin in us hates God and His holiness. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In our natural state, we're not only ugly before God, we're ugly to God. We're not a prize to be won from a normal point of view. Yet he loved us anyway. In fact, he so loved us. It was a deep, deep, deep love. He really, really, really loved us. Not just a little. Love beyond what we can imagine. One of my favorite hymns puts it this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though spread from sky to sky. Please understand that every person's love in this earth right now combined together would only make a drop of a drop compared to the ocean of God's love. We were bathed in stinking sin, stalking around this planet as ungrateful enemies. Can you wrap your mind this morning around just how much God loves you? He's not just some impersonal force up in the sky who sees us as tiny specks on a tiny planet or as little chess pieces that he can move around and, and play his own video game version. Right now, God knows your name. He knows your history. He knows your hopes and dreams, and he cares about them. He cares about you. What happens to you matters to him. He so loves you. He so loves me. 
By the way, Tim Keller in a sermon I heard this week talked about how so many are looking for this kind of love in marriage. They're looking for a soulmate. I'll find the one person, they'll complete me, and it never happens. He said, we always go to bed with Rachel and wake up with Leah. If you want to go to the Old Testament story, I won't explain it. Nobody can fill the deep, deep gap of love that we have except God. I don't care how good they are. All of our souls, all of our craving for love is at heart a craving for God. This rich, deep love that only can fill us in a way that we need to be filled. Well, talk is cheap. Okay, he loved us so much. How do we know that God so loved us? The next line gives us the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave. Now that sounds nice, but fairly innocuous, doesn't it? And perhaps some of you have volunteered one of your children. Billy, would you go mow neighbor's lawn? They need some help. Would you go take their dog out? This giving of Jesus, however, was not like that. It wasn't a light duty. Can you, can you run off this errand for me? First, when he gave Jesus, he allowed his son a glorious, infinite, omnipresent spirit to be crammed into a tiny, weak, limited human body, imagining packing your whole self into an amoeba. Jesus, whom Isaiah says, with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens, went into an 18 to 20 inch body, crammed into pink human body stuffed with organs, with tiny fingers and toes. Suddenly God, the Son, God Almighty, had limits. He needed parents to feed him. He needed sleep. He needed to be covered up. He needed to be taken care of. He got tired. He got hungry. Even as an adult, he had the same physical limitations that we all have. And you know what? I've got a picture of Jesus sitting in my bedroom that makes him look like something out of GQ magazine. But Isaiah 53 tells us God didn't exactly give him the genetic cheekbones. It tells us that he was not, he was not especially handsome. He was an ordinary-looking man. There is no beauty that we should desire him. So first of all, God gave him by letting him, who was infinite, go into a finite human body. Second, God allowed his son to live among us in our sin-infested world. Now, Jesus did not come down as the bubble boy. He did not come down all sealed away from what society he had to live in. He walked among sinful people. He watched his siblings fight, even with him, I'm sure, or try to anyway. He heard men curse each other in the marketplace. He heard the dirty joke that the other carpenter was telling. And he himself faced a lot of hatred. You think if you were Jesus, you'd be the most popular person, right? But Isaiah 53 that was read this morning says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. As one who hated sin, I've got a wife who's got a really sensitive nose. And she can smell anything that doesn't smell good. Now, I can't smell any of it, so... This creates a problem sometimes. As one who hated the smell of sin, the stench of it was around him all the time. The pain of it was around him all the time. The sensitivity was like walking, in a sense, on hot coals, I suppose. But third and most importantly, when God gave his son, 
He didn't just give him to live among us, but to be hated, persecuted, brutally tortured, and put to death. Furthermore, he suffered spiritually in a way that we can never fully understand. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the main suffering of the cross. This was a pain that no other human beings have ever approximated. You think you hurt, I think I hurt. This is hurt with a capital H, a thousand miles tall. Nor was this just an unfortunate accident. Jesus came down and got whacked off and oh, no, he was sent. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it tells us in other places they chose us in him before the foundation of the world and so on. Jesus paid the price for our sins through his death on the cross and gave us life through his resurrection. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He didn't need to prove anything. He, had not, he just did it anyway. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Tim Keller again was talking about that passage out of Romans where he said Paul gets emotional. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he said Paul's getting emotional there. He's, he's just stopping and worshiping. The fact that God loves you, you, you may think you're giving him a break by coming to church this morning. <laughs> no, he's, it's all breaks. All the breaks are on his side. He so loved the world. How could he possibly love us so much who are so undeserving? Yet, praise God, let's go back to our opening statement. It is what it is. Aren't you glad that is what it is? God is love. He loves to love and he pointed it in our direction. Praise God. Tim Keller says, and I'm quoting Tim, and I didn't write any of this in my, in my uh, sermon, but I listened to a sermon on his all praise, like the Lord's Prayer, should start with adoration. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That changes the rest of the prayer. Just to, to fall in love with God, show the love with God right from the beginning, instead of saying, by the way, God, I need this, I need that. What wondrous love is this. Yet despite Christ's incredible sacrifice on the cross, our world is still, for the most part, badly messed up. Why? If Christ died to make things right, why isn't the world healed and cleansed? Why is the world still at war with God? The answer lies in the rest of the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now we have an airline pilot with us today, and you can appreciate the crop duster thing that goes on with a brave, I, I'm reckless, I, I'm brave pilots. I can't imagine doing that for a living. But you know, when you crop dust, you crop dust the whole field, right? The plants don't vote and say, crop dust me. No, don't crop dust me. You know, I'm not ready for the, this vaccination. Oh, I shouldn't bring that up, should I? Um, why didn't Jesus with his blood just crop dust the whole world? His grace was sufficient to forgive every person. Why didn't he just spread it all over? Everybody would be forgiven. 
Perhaps he could have, but that would have foiled the purpose because he wanted it to be a free choice. He wanted it to be a two-way street. He died for those who want to be forgiven of their sins. And for those who are willing to overlook it and say, I don't care, they're not saved. Lots of people today believe in some sort of Jesus. And they might even have some respect for him, but when all is said and done, he's irrelevant to their lives. They don't obey him or seek him. I think what John 3.16 is talking about is a saving belief. Even the demons believe in shudder, it tells us in James. What does a saving belief involve? Three things. One, believing in who Jesus actually is. The Mormons believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Lots of religions believe in some kind of Jesus. Believe in in who he actually is. Believing in what he did for us, that he died on the cross for us. And then giving your life to follow him. Accepting that, repenting. Romans 10.9 captures these pretty well. That if, with, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Calling Jesus Lord means we believe he is God. Believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead means that we believe in what he did for us. And confessing these implies that we're giving our lives to follow him. Now the third part of this definition is where a lot of people pull back. They may believe Jesus is God, that he was raised from the dead, but they still don't want to follow him. Why? Because following Jesus means a change in life. It means that we repent of our sins, we seek to obey him rather than just going our own way. Now everybody wants a Jesus in their life, the the rich resource that they can go to, the divine vending machine. Almost everybody wouldn't mind having Jesus as a friend or a helper, but many do not want him to be their Lord. They won't want him to be their leader, their God. It sounds too intrusive. What if he wants me to stop drinking so much? What if he wants me to give up pornography? What if he wants me to start reading the Bible and go to church every Sunday? What if he expects me to be sexually pure? And the list goes on and on. I don't know if this deal is worth it, they say. Yeah, I'd like his help, but this other stuff's cool. Now the list goes on, and I want to stop and just say none of these things will save you. Being sexually pure doesn't save you, and and so on. It is only the blood of Jesus that saves us. And we all still sin, don't we? Even though we're, we're saved. But yes, those who truly believe in Jesus show it by trusting him enough to follow him. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands, it says in 1 John. They do it because they believe Jesus truly is the light and that his way is truly the best way to live the way they were created to live. Now what about you? I may be preaching to the choir this morning. But have you come to the third part? Just respect Jesus and and go to him, believe he died on the cross, but have not ever really given your life to him. If you haven't given your life to him, today is a good day to do it. It's right on the calendar. You can, by faith, you can just say, Lord, I repent of my sin and I accept your forgiveness on the cross. Take my life. Notice, by the way, this is not an invitation-only party. They don't have bouncers here keeping certain people out. That whoever believes in him, your color doesn't matter. Please hear me because the devil will whisper some of these things. Your past doesn't matter as far as salvation goes. I said said when I preached this sermon, even Hitler could have been saved. 
Oh, that gets you in the gut, doesn't it? But it's true. Your culture doesn't matter. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, perhaps the devil is whispering in your ear this morning, come on, get real. You think he would really save you? Oh, that other guy, he's a good guy, but you know what you've done. You know where you've been. You're a loser. He doesn't draft losers onto his playing team. Whoever means whoever. Whenever. Satan is lying, as we've already seen. There are no good people apart from God. No deserving people. None of us deserve anything but rejection. But he's reaching his hand out to you today. And he's smiling. He's like, oh, come on. He said, come on, come on. Why? Because he so loves you. A love we can hardly understand in this world. We just get a little taste of it. He had to have this colossal lover. He never would have sent his son down to this planet. So if there's any hesitation for salvation, it's on your part this morning. It's not God. So why should we believe in him? Why should we seal the deal? The rest of the verse explains. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now we live in a world crammed with choices. It's almost paralyzing at times, isn't it? You go in the store and there's, there's all these different kinds of chocolate chips and cereal and, and you go online and you can find anything you want, good or bad, legal or illegal. And a lot of people think that spirituality is like that, that you've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, as long as you're sincere, as long as it works for you. I'm here to tell you there's two choices, A and B. We either have Christ or we don't have Christ. We either have heaven or we have hell. We either are found or we're lost. You say, well, I don't think that's fair. Well, it doesn't matter. You're not the one making the decision. The judge makes the decision and the judge is God. It's an illusion that we have more than two choices and a lot of people are living under it. I'm a pretty good person. I, I chose C. By the way, do you know the, the number of nuns in the United States, N-O-N-E-S, when they take polls to say, what church do you belong to? If you belong to a church, are you Lutheran? Are you Presbyterian? An increasing number, especially of young people, are just saying none. That doesn't mean they're atheists, necessarily, but it means they don't want to identify with organized religion. So there are people that are kind of hedging around. They're smorgasbording. I'm not saying you, have to, you can't go to a non-denominational church like this one, but some of them won't even go to church. They want a spirituality that they can kind of custom form themselves. But there are only two choices. There's Jesus and there's death. That's all. But friends, let's look at the positive side as we close. God has approached a bunch of unworthy sinners, namely us, and offered us the best possible existence, offered to take us to the very top of life's ladder. Is that good news? If we believe in him, starting in this life, we begin to reap the benefits. You've already reaped a lot of them, haven't you, even though this is not heaven. In the midst of life's pain and struggles, we now have hope and strength. The Spirit comes to live in us, and one day he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. For the first time, you will know complete joy and peace and holiness and love, and this will go on forever and ever. 
If you already have this eternal life, stop and thank God for it. Don't take it for granted. You've got hope that nothing can destroy in this world. That's why Peter and Paul were so positive in their letters. They thought, well, what do I have to lose? Our, bright, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, Paul said. And Peter said, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you're not sure that you've been saved this morning, you can do that. You can come to Christ. You can, by faith, pray that prayer and receive the one gift that all the money in the world cannot buy.